there's a serious clash of interest going on in what remains of the jungles of Borneo. Carl Hoffman followed the trails of an art dealer and an environmentalist who each thought they were helping preserve a native tribe in their own way. It turns out the real treasure is what remains of a fleeting way of life. The reality is that places like Borneo are changing, they're changing fast, they're under a lot of pressure, and I would jump at the opportunity to see them, and I would say it's fairly low risk. British voters are still conflicted over what it's going to mean to leave the European Union. It's one of the great phrases of almost everyday life in England. Brexit means Brexit. I voted for Brexit, but I personally don't think it's going to happen. But everyone agrees that Meghan Markle will make a smashing new princess. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Get up to date on London this year, plus tales of death and treasure among the last wild men of Borneo. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One of them disappeared near a sacred peak in the jungles of Borneo. The other got rich, selling the region's tribal art to museums and collectors. Carl Hoffman followed their trails into the wilds of Borneo and tells us what he discovered coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start the hour with a look at what's happening this year in London. For the British, the city is like a combination of New York, Washington, and L.A. It's a world financial capital, a center of art and culture, and Europe's largest city. You can tie together London's many attractions by mastering one of the best subway systems anywhere, or enjoy the view from a classic double-decker bus or a roomy black cab. But ask any Londoner, and you'll find there's still a lot of uncertainty over the Brexit vote as England prepares to sever its membership in the European Union. Still, the pound's been steadily recovering its value since its decline effectively put the city on sale for tourists last year. Today, we've imported three of my favorite Blue Badge guides to help us get ready to enjoy their city of London this year. Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett, thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So when we think about going to London, and London is a huge destination, the big difference is Brexit. You know, and here in the United States, we don't quite know what to make of Brexit as a tourist. What impact does that have on our visit in the coming year? Uh, Tom, what would you say? I think it's given London a higher profile in some ways. How so? Bizarrely, because yeah. it's so frequently in the news that it's been much more prevalent in people's thoughts yeah. and where should we go? Oh, well, London. Yeah, London. Check out London. Brexit. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Jeannie, my, my hunch is if, if you really had to say what impact has it had on tourists, almost nothing. I mean, the, the pound dropped in value and now it's slowly been recouping. And uh, London is a great city. It's, it's expensive, but it's a worthwhile value if you know how to travel smartly there. I would agree. I think the biggest impact, of course, is on the business community, yeah. the banking community especially. But so I would argue with you about London being expensive. How so? It isn't. There's so much that's free. Well, there's a lot that's free. Absolutely. That's yes. true. But uh, accommodations, from an accommodations point and from an eating point of view. Eating, again, I would yeah. disagree with you. You yeah. just need to know where to go. Okay. Now, Robert, I, I always think when I'm thinking of England and London being the, the capital and uh, all of the commotion in regards to Britain's membership in the EU, I always think of standing on the cliffs of Dover and gazing out at Europe and thinking of all the history that's happened there. You've got Romans, you've got Napoleon, you've got Hitler, you've got the European Union, you've got people swimming across it, you've got the English Channel Tunnel, and now we've got Brexit. If you stand on the cliffs of Dover and you look over at Europe, what do you think? Well, we're, we're very much tied to Europe. It's, it's interesting that we've, we've had this vote, and we've had this vote to leave Europe, 
and I interestedly voted to leave. I felt that we would be a better nation if we left, and I voted to uh, to leave. And I still think that we will be a better nation. But interestingly, we are also very much tied to Europe. Our history is very European. We're French, basically, the, the Normans. You know, they came over in 1066. They were from Normandy. They were French. So we're very much tied to them. Our, our culture, even our language in many ways, were very, very wow. European. The Norman conquest really meant a lot for the sort of centralizing the government. It did. And and more effective government. More effective government. Really sort of fast-tracked England as a country. It did. It pushed England forward, really pushed us forward. Robert, you voted then for Brexit. I did. And I'm wondering what would be the, because there's pain associated with that as you uncouple all of this trade and London potentially loses its place as a great financial capital, what would, how would you make a case for leaving the EU? What were the main points of uh, discontent? Um, my case, personally, was better security. I think we needed to have some some sort of control over our borders. I'm not saying that we shouldn't let people in. Right. I just think that we should have more thought on who arrives, who comes in. At least 70% of our laws today come from Europe, and I personally don't think that's a, that's a good thing. Do you think Brexit is actually going to happen? Uh, No, I don't. I voted for Brexit, but I personally don't think it's going to happen. How can that be? I think that there's probably a lot of talking behind the scenes. I think that the the Europeans are going to do everything they can to keep us as part of the European Union. I think there are countries like Greece and Italy, Portugal, who are looking to see what will happen with Britain. I think if it's easy for Britain to leave the European Union, they will automatically want to leave. And Tom, if for whatever the technicality where you have to have another referendum or the parliament has a vote for it or whatever, if Brexit falls apart and Britain ultimately stays with the EU, wouldn't there almost be a civil war within England by the 50% of the people that voted to leave Europe? Well, we're not in, we're not in that situation yet, as the government is very clear that Brexit will happen, full stop. Yeah, Theresa May says Brexit means Brexit, yes. right? It's the will of the it's, people. It's one of the great phrases of almost everyday life in England. Brexit means Brexit. So it's a two-year process, I understand. And in March uh, 2019, that's when that will happen if everything unfolds. Well, there is suggested that there's now going to be a period after that. After that time. During which other negotiations will take place. We can have another think about it and maybe even another vote. Is that right? So there actually is a chance to... Mm -hmm. uh, Because my frustration with a lot of these um, plebiscites almost or these big initiatives in Europe and in Britain, especially uh, Scotland and so on, people are given... It's either this extreme answer or this extreme answer in a very complicated issue where you want a middle ground, but it's not an option. So people have to choose black or white. Well, your your comment about um, civil war or the extreme. Right. This is an issue which has polarized the country. Yes, I bet. And there are people who are very forcefully against leaving the EU, and there are people who are equally very forcibly insisting we must, and the two are basically geometrically opposed. Could there ultimately be a kind of uh, soft Brexit? Norway is kind of an example of a society that didn't want to completely drink the European Kool-Aid, but is a trading partner and a friend nevertheless. Well, the Norwegian formula has been in discussion in the news in the last week in the UK. Mm-hmm. So that's a, it is an option that might let the extreme, hard-feeling people on both sides 
that, not go to war. I think that's that's possibly one. Well, I'm not. Happen. I'm not, not so overly sure, sure about that. No, I think there is a strong view that the Norwegian settlement, if that was to happen, would leave you not being in the club, but paying to be. You're paying the dues and not getting exactly, the and, not, and, and not getting any say in. The, 4 a.m. in London, and we've just seen one of the most stunning results in British electoral history. Uh, I feel free. I think the British people have spoken. Making our own laws, I have no idea who's governing me and making my rules in Europe. And I'm looking forward to the European club come tumbling down. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're trying to make sense of the 2016 Brexit vote that has the United Kingdom poised to separate itself from its partner countries of the European Union. Our guests from London are Robert Halkett, Jeannie Carmichael, and Tom Hooper. To me, a very complicated thing is the Irish border because Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. And uh, Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland are doing pretty well lately, and I love this idea of no real border there. Mm. But in order to be out of the EU, you have to put a trade border there because Northern Ireland would be out of the EU and the Republic of Ireland would stay in the EU. Mm. Uh, Jeannie, what's the, what's the reality for this oh, border issue in how Ireland? How that would work, God only knows. Sounds very tough. Oh, I mean, just well, God yes. only knows. I think it's yes. just impossible. Mm. It's probably the, the, work. the invisible border is one of the deal breakers for the, the Democratic EU. Unionist Party, who have the arrangement with the current Conservative Party yes. to create government in London. And where that invisible border is, is a deal breaker for the. DUP, as they're known. So these are the extreme political group in North Ireland that that was sort of the kingmaker because uh, the main party I think in England needed a coalition to approach them. Mm, I think giving Ireland support. more leverage, yes. Northern Ireland more leverage yeah. on this. The I, I, and then in the I, EU can't allow. I think this. saying that saying they're extreme is a bit extreme. I mean, the fact that they yeah. live in the 1950s is neither here nor there. But okay. no. Okay, so let's say not extremists, <laughs> but they're living in the past or something like this. But but where they see the border isn't necessarily the same place that the Irish see the border, as in... But this group uh, is a unionist group, meaning this group is a group that is adamant about staying with the UK and not being part of the... Absolutely. 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 No negotiation are, possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was they thinking, are unionist. It would be nice to make an exception, because we all like the Irish people, and let's let them have their border <laughs> that cheats. But the EU can't allow that, uh, but, but the, then other countries will have their <laughs> exactly. uh, goofy, yes, not quite a border. So the EU has to have a strict well, example in Ireland. It goes, it goes further than that, because... The Northern Irish, put forward by the DUP, want the border in a different place invisibly than the era Southern Irish. If you give a separate deal for Northern yeah. Ireland, instantly Scotland comes and yeah. says, we like, and obviously where I come from, Cornwall will want a special and deal Wales, as well. And Wales, and so it goes on. man, and you just go, so it goes on. get ourselves yeah. into this mess? And mm. the other issue, which I think is fascinating, with the EU, Europeans are so accustomed now, Europeans including Brits, to free travel. And you can mm. study and work here and there, and London's got tens of thousands mm. of people with other passports uh, working and living in London. Is it my understanding that there's an attempt to work this Brexit thing out and grandfather in people who have already been able to live and work in different places? Or is it going to be 
deportation, and you're out of a job. I think deportation of anybody would be impossible. Yes. It would ruin the economy. So they, they would, they no would sane likely government. have... A, I thought Robert was going to say that's the answer. Deportation is the right answer. I did too. <laughs> Thank goodness, Robert. I'm glad you... It's the first, first sensible thing you've said. Yeah. I'm militant, but not that much. Yes, exactly. So that's it, because Robert, you support Brexit, but you understand that it's not realistic to take a, a huge economy that's established as integrated into Britain. So basically, we need to stay tuned to see what's going on in Brexit. Yes, because nobody knows. Nobody, nobody knows. knows. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And I think with time, you get a little more nuanced understanding of the reality of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, and thank goodness you're still talking to each other on both sides of the yeah, issue. Yeah, I'm still talking to Robert. I voted to stay in the EU. Me too. Can Very I just say so. something? What's interesting no, about the um, <laughs> about a referendum is it's it's... Whenever we've voted uh -huh. in a re referendum, it's always been a testing of the waters. And I think a lot of people voted yes. in this referendum I think that's a fair not point. knowing that the next day it would be law. Yeah. Well, it will, well binding. Think there's, there's, a binding. there's a lot yes. of societies, a lot of Western democracies that voted for something yeah. just sort of to test the yes, water, to throw a right. grenade in there and just shake mm. things up. It's, it's been wonderful for the pollsters, of course, because you know, every week you get a poll mm -hmm. on what the next referendum will produce. We will have done it without having to fight, without a single bullet being fired. Our guides from London are Tom Hooper, Robert Halkett, and Jeannie Carmichael. Just ahead, they'll update us on the latest attractions you should take in this year in London. And they'll take your calls at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Carl Hoffman tells us how the modern world is changing one of the last remote holdouts of the rainforest on Borneo. That's coming up a little later this hour on Travel with Rick Steves. So far today, we've been examining what the people in London are talking about this year on the uncertainties that lie ahead after Britain's historic Brexit vote. Let's turn our attentions now to some of the things that make the British capital a great destination to visit, especially this year. Our Blue Badge guides from London are Jeannie Carmichael, Robert Halkett, and Tom Hooper. So, you guys, there's a lot happening in London, and uh, what would you say, uh, Jeannie, is a good thing to be mindful of when you're planning a trip to London in the, in the next few months? Well, I think one of the most exciting new things is the new galleries at Westminster Abbey. They are, for the first time, opening up what's called the Triforium, high up in the nave. You'll be able to climb up there and look down onto the nave, 70 feet up looking down. Oh. Fantastic. I mean, amazing views. But they're going to make that a display area for fabulous old royal costumes. You're walking on the tombs of all these old royals. You might as well Absolutely. see what they wore before they died. They wore. You can see Queen Elizabeth <laughs> I's corset. Oh, my Fantastic. goodness. Fantastic. And yes. they probably have she, a rotating exhibit, mm. so it's always going to be new, I would imagine. Mm. Well, they've got so much stuff that they found mm. to exhibit. It was a bit of a storeroom for uh, yeah. hundreds and mm. hundreds of years. Yeah. Now, you pay the general admission, and I've been doing that for years, and it's just a wonderland of British history and yeah. all the poets and the kings and the queens and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you go upstairs. Well, there'll be an additional... Additional fee to go fee upstairs. Fee to go upstairs to the yeah. Triforium. Yeah, but... All right, but what a what a It will be, it will, oh. it will be a mess. Take, take away Elizabeth, the Virgin <laughs> Queen's corset. <laughs> and, you know, you've still got this huge space, and I think Ginny is so right... For the first time, to be able to look down from above. So even without the Queen's corset, it's worth it. I think yeah. even without the Queen's corset. But with she the was Queen's the Virgin Queen. The Queen's corset, Nobody it did take the corset off. <laughs> it becomes a must. So that's great. What mm -hmm. else is new that we could remember in England or in London? 
Well, how about the new Bloomberg Centre? Uh, in the heart of the city of London. Fantastic new modern building, mm. but it's built on the site of an ancient Roman temple. So this is the Bloomberg Center. Mm-hmm. Is that like a big modern office center? Or yes, a huge or modern huge. office center. And then you've got the ancient Roman temple of Mithras. Inside, mm-hmm. yes. Which is inside mm-hmm. now. Yeah. A reminder that London was quite a thriving urban center 2,000 years sure. ago. It was Two doing th- business yeah. 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years of making money. Mm-hmm. Well, London knows how to do it. Let's hope London we continue. Trade. All right. So we'll remember the Bloomberg Center to see the Roman temple there. Uh, Robert, what else would be going on this year that people would want to be mindful of? I think the big thing this year is probably the royal wedding. Um, people royal. love love royalty. And uh, Harry, the young son of uh, the Prince of Wales, is getting married to, is she American or Canadian? She is American. American. He's American. Yeah. So uh, we're going to have an American princess. We are beautiful American princess. For the first yes. time. I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so what do you uh, English friends think about having an American in the royal family? Fantastic. Absolutely She's gorgeous. Brilliant. Really? Yes. It's great. Hey. <laughs> but All right. She seems to be born for that role. <laughs> is she well, is yes. she popular? Oh boy, yes, is she popular? Yes. Megan Mania is sweeping. Yes. Megan Mania. Yes. She was in Wales mm-hmm. last week, wasn't she, Jeannie? She oh, was at Cardiff, Cardiff, Cardiff Castle. You, you wouldn't yes. know, Rick, but every item of clothes she wears sells out. Instantly. Is Instantly. that yes. right? Mm-hmm. And how did she meet the prince? They were introduced by friends mm. at, yes. at a club, and it was love at first sight for him. Amazing. Which, when you look at her, is perfectly understandable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what month is this wedding going to be? How do you know that, Jimmy? Were you there? Were you there? I read the gossip <laughs> magazine. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's one thing when you're in London. Don't be above reading the gossip no. newspapers. Oh, the gossip. You're sitting yeah. on the tube. They're it's handing the these the newspapers news. out for free. Yeah. And they hand them out at the tube station. Yes. So you're going to be sitting yeah. on the tube for half an hour. Yes. And find out about Absolutely. Megan Mania. Of it's, course. Um, it's in May and it's in Windsor. It's in Windsor. It's May the 19th. 19th of May. So that's something St. George's Chapel, Windsor. Also, they've got the new entryway at the Victorian Albert Museum, which yes. is, is quite, I mean, it doesn't change the museum that much, but it really gives it a wonderful sort of presence. It's a, it's a great entrance. It's called yeah. the Porcelain yeah. Piazza. I think it's 11,000 porcelain tiles. It's the only kind, one of its kind in the world. It's, uh, so that's it's something also, to enjoy at the Victorian Albert Museum, the, which, by the way, yeah. is a great museum. And I have Ooh. to say, Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, would probably be very happy that pavement is there because it opens things up a lot more. I love that. And, you know, I've been watching the, um, the series uh, Victoria. Oh, yes. Have you seen that? Yes. yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy these um, miniseries mm. about the British mm-hmm. monarchs. Uh, what, what's the other one? There's The Crown. There's the Crown. The Crown, yeah. the crown yes. about Queen Elizabeth. The yes. Crown is a good one. And the Crown is brown. One thing that people don't understand, first of all, everybody thinks of Queen Victoria as this frumpy, sort of conservative, prudish person, but she was a very impressive and dashing young princess. She was. And stylish. Stylish. And her beloved husband, Albert, yes. did yeah. a great yeah. deal to usher in the modern age and the yes. Industrial Revolution. The great exhibition. Oh, yeah. So much. Nice idea. We owe a great debt to Albert in many respects. He was a Renaissance yeah. man in the 19th century. Uh, sure. Even in being able to help check Victoria's natural obstinacy and stubbornness. Right. No, so when you the... when you watch these series, of course they're romanticized and dramatized and so on, but it gives you a a, a better feeling yeah. of behind the uh, the facade. Mm. Remember the Crown two series has got to what nineteen sixty three now. Yeah, and there's the Queen sixty fifth sixty fifth anniversary mm-hmm. of her coronation this year. We've do you got think years? The, do you think the Queen watches it? I would almost certainly oh. say no. No. Mm. Oh, mm, I I've, bet she does. I, 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 <laughs> 
I say that because recently she saw film of her coronation day that she had shot, I think. On her coronation. No, yeah. she she actually appeared on television talking about mm. her coronation. Okay. It was fantastic. And, she's, she's, and talking about the crown jewels. Oh, that And she was, said yeah. she'd never seen the film before. We're looking at what's going on this year in London on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides, Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett, are taking your calls at 877-333-RICK. And Diane's calling in from Seattle. Diane, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Sounds like there's quite a few things going on. I was in London about 30 years ago and was there for two weeks, so did a lot of visiting to the museums and the theaters. So what we're looking for now, we're going to only be there for three days in September, and something that isn't on the top ten list, because we've probably already done those, but things that are still of significance to London. And I know there's a lot, um, just listening to you talk about Victoria and Albert and Westminster Abbey, Mm -hmm. um, but what else is there that perhaps wouldn't be on that top ten list. Yeah, if you're there for three days, you could spend two days doing all the obvious stuff because, you know, you you got to do that. And then if you had one day just to really do some kind of crazy, intimate uh, angles on London, let's let each of our guides share one little quirky end of London that Diane might enjoy. I'd go to an area like Islington. The underground station's called The Angel. The Angel. The Angel. Um, it's on the Northern Line. You get out a few minutes' walk from the uh, from the underground station, there's a great market called Camden Passage. It sells mm. antiques. There's great restaurants, um, one or two pubs. It's a very local area. So go to a neighborhood and enjoy and one of London's go, beloved markets. A, it doesn't have to be Islington. You can go to Hampstead. Right. But just find an area that's not necessarily on the, on the tourist route. And you feel and, the uh, pulse of that And you'll feel the pulse of the neighborhood. Jeannie. I would say, why not go to an area like the city of London, the Mm -hmm. financial district, which has got so much history, but people normally don't look deeply into it. Uh So you can wander around streets that people have walked around for 2,000 years. Oh, yeah. You can go underground and see the original Roman amphitheater that's there. And I would go to a bank that is no longer a bank and is now a pub. Yeah, the mm. the old Bank of England pub. Because they've got these, these grand the banks. Because a hundred years ago, the, the, the banks were like palaces to give sure. the sense of stability. Mm-hmm. The and, Guildhall, the Parliament of the okay. City, 15th century building. This is all free. Pop into a Wren church. You could visit a yeah, Wren church. 23 Wren churches to visit. All right. Tom, and what I, would you do? I would twin that with possibly popping into the Bank of England Museum, yeah, which is the old, old counting house of the yeah. Bank of England. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd definitely go for one of the free views. Oh, there's these uh, so, beautiful, when you build a skyscraper, yeah. you need yeah. to have some access so if would, you're obliterating a view. Right. So I would go online and look up Sky Garden, and i book a time to go up to it. It's in what's called the walkie-talkie building, and there's a conservatory at the top of it. So that's not a free view, then? Oh, that's a free view. Oh, but you've got to book it. You Because it's now in such demand, you need to ah. book it three, four weeks okay. ahead, roughly. Now, if you want to go up the Shard, you have to pay quite a bit to get that view. Yes. 30 pounds. Yeah. 30 pounds, so like $40 for but the view. the cocktail bar of the hotel <laughs> is one floor yes, underneath is. the viewing platform, so why wouldn't you spend your 30 pounds on you two can, nice so cocktails you buy a drink, and get the identical drink. view? Now, there's a good tip. And that's also with the Sky Garden, if you can't get... 
a slot on the okay. Go to the go to the bar. Buy a drink. drink. You know, just outside of St. Paul's, I noticed there's a shopping mall. One new change. One one new change. Yeah, I love that. I I was with Robert, and uh, I just thought, here's a. It's like astroturf. It's got you know fake grass, Mm. and it's way up there, as tall as the dome of St. Paul's. It's free. You just and it's free, and you're with all these. Together with it, London business people. Well, and it just felt really good. Because there's a champagne bar up there. Yes, so yes. Together with so it. when you want another cocktail or champagne, it's Madison's, I think it's called. Madison's. And it's on, you take the lift, as we would call it, elevator, as some people call and, it. And this is, what so is the building called? One New Change. So, Diane, One New Change. It's just uh, one Six. block away from St. Paul's Cathedral, and you've got yourself a, a sixth floor, a free perch uh, surrounded by modern London. Diane, that gives you some ideas, I hope. Oh, awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. The only thing we're disappointed in is that we're leaving before the Seahawks get there. <laughs> oh, well, you'll have a good time even so. All right. Happy travels. Thank you so much for your help. I really appreciate it. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what's new in London. We're joined by Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett, three London guides. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Samantha's calling in from Houston. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Big fan. Thank you. What are your thoughts on London lately? Well, I'm going to be in London this summer for the first time. Me and my sister are going together. And unfortunately, we have very, very limited time in London. But one thing that we definitely want to do is check out a local pub. And because we have such limited time, we're worried about getting trapped in a place that is just preying on tourists and has excessively high prices. I have this vision of us just dining with the locals and drinking a pint and eating some fish and chips. So I'm wondering about any tips that you guys have for how to find a traditional, authentic place and avoid the tourist trap. Well, first of all, you don't want to go to a famous pub because if you go to ye old Cheshire Inn, you're going to be there with all the tour groups and you're going to just get cliches and you're going to be surrounded by people who are not English. What, what is your advice, uh, Well, the good news is we do have 4,500 pubs in London, so there's <laughs> four plenty, and a half there's thousand plenty pubs. of choice. Yeah. You know, I would say uh, to remember, Samantha, some uh, focus on the drink and some take their food seriously. And you would mm. want a pub that really doesn't mind losing the easy money from selling beer to provide good food. And I would go with a local recommendation. Personally, I would stay, I wouldn't go in the center for that. I would go near your hotel and ask at your hotel yes. where they go for a pub yeah, meal. Yeah, very yeah. Much so. For instance, when I'm staying in South Kensington, I go to uh, Kensington Arms. Yeah. No, Anglesey Arms. Anglesey yeah. yeah. Arms, Arms is a good pub. No, Anglesey Arms in mm. near South Kensington. You could walk there in 10 minutes from the South Kensington mm. tube stop. But to me, that is the like dream come true London pub. And there's mm. almost no tourist there because it's a neighborhood pub. Anglesey Arms, yeah. But there's every neighborhood has a, oh, a yes. pub that is yeah. the, a favorite. All right. Does that give you some ideas, Samantha? Yes, that's amazing. Thanks so much. We'll be sure to toast you whenever we're at our um, local pub this oh, summer. <laughs> Thank you. That. Thanks Thank you. a lot. Yes. Thank you. By the way, I like there's a, there's that um, Chandos. Is that what it's called? The, the Chandos. Duke, the Chandos. The great thing about that is it's on Trafalgar yeah. Square mm. and it's tucked away just about a block away by the uh, portrait gallery. That's right. That's right. And downstairs is quite um, rough and tumble, but upstairs is a, nice a, a very elegant mm. pub restaurant. Mm. And a lot of people go there before I've, theater. I've oh, seen you there before. And the cool thing is it's kind of a time warp. You go by, it's a, it's a little bit well-worn. It just feels like elegant 1940s London or something. Olga's calling in from Vancouver in Washington. Hi, Olga. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me today. Yeah. What are your thoughts or questions about London? Uh, last 
time my husband and I were there in London, we were visiting the Camden Lock Market area. And we were just walking around the market, and we were close to where the canals are. And we found this little path, and we decided, well, let's try this. And this path just, I guess it's called the Camden Lock Walk. And we just continued taking this for about an hour. And we ended up in another area called, I think, Little Venice. But it was so refreshing. It was so quiet. We felt like we had gone back in time. And it just it was nice seeing all the canal boats and kayaks just going right by you. It was just very, very cute. Well, you're a good example of a traveler who um, kind of finds a little opportunity and makes it happen, a free spirit. And in London, I think that's a great approach. Do any of you know this walk? Oh, yes. yes. So all of our guides know this walk, and and, and they're thinking that's a good idea. And now Camden has also a a great market, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Big, trendy. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of markets Mm. in London. And uh, give me just a little information on the the markets, because it's a little overwhelming as a traveler. Where would you find the most interesting action at a market, Tom? Well, I think you'd actually, Camden is probably the biggest action. Yeah. But, you know, Portobello Road is also on the must visit market scene. And if you're looking then, for alternative kind of uh, life or immigrant uh, action and so on. Brixton. Brixton. So mm. you'd go south of the Thames River. Spitalfields an interesting mm. one, isn't that it? Spitalfields is a brilliant yeah. market. Yes. And, and the borough market. For borough food. Market for organic food. food. Organic food. It's mm. a wonderful place yeah. just uh, over bump. the river from the Tower of London, right? Might bump mm. into Jamie Oliver. You never know. That's, oh, there's some beautiful little shops there. The, yeah. the, the cheesemonger yeah. or something yeah. else. Yeah. Ooh. All right, Olga, I hope that gives you some ideas. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jeannie Carmichael, Tom Hooper, and Robert Halkett about what's going on in London. Robert and Jeannie and Tom, so much fun talking to you. Let's pretend I was going to visit you in a couple of weeks in your hometown, and you want to just blow me away. I've been going there for a long time. I wrote a book about London, but you want to show me something new. That'll be a lot of fun. Where would you take me? Okay, I'm going to take you to the New Bridge Theatre. Brand new, right by Tower Bridge. Fabulous. Nicholas Heitner, who's a big name in our theatre. Huge um, 900-seat theatre. Not only shows, plays, it does music, it does poetry readings. At night, you've got Tower Bridge all lit up. You've got the Tower of London across the river. Oh, sounds good. Loads of new restaurants and wine bars all around there now. Fabulous. I'll be there. The name again? Okay. The Bridge Theatre. The Bridge Theatre near the... uh, Right by Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge. And Robert? Oh, I would buy us a picnic lunch and I would take you to Primrose Hill. (laughs) We'd walk up to the hill and we'd get this gorgeous view of the whole city. I'd go there at sunset and just look out at the city. Oh, that sounds good. I'd be able to point out one or two buildings to you. Just give you an idea of what we'll be doing for the next couple of days in London. Feels like the dating game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good. Tom, where would you go? And I take you into one of the buzziest central areas and I take you to Soho. Soho? And I take you probably to Compton Street, which is one of the buzziest and happening streets there is right in the middle with its bars and restaurants. You know, I always go to Soho, and it's got, you know, in the old days it was the uh, where the con artists run the street with their shell games. Yeah. It was where all the strip clubs were. It it's the gay center. The, club, the clubs are still there, but much cleaned up. Much cleaned it's up. still the gay center. So, so much energy, so yeah. much creativity, great little mm. restaurants. Yeah. And just to walk Lots down the streets, it's a, it's sort of youth on the yeah, rampage yeah. and it's fun to go no, and park, park yourself somewhere and just people watch yeah. as well That's all right quite... i'm with all of you thanks so much thank and you. uh robert Jeannie, and tom happy travels and let's thank talk you. again about london thank you Silver rain was 
for something completely different, as they say. Our next stop is in the remote South Seas rainforest of Borneo. Journalist Carl Hoffman writes about some of the truly far-flung corners of the world. He's just released The Last Wild Men of Borneo, in which he traces the impacts of two very different Westerners on Borneo's nomadic tribes and the impacts of encroachment from the outside world. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Faraway Borneo is famously distant from the modern world. It's also the setting for a fascinating book by journalist Carl Hoffman. In The Last Wild Men of Borneo, Carl retraces the footsteps of two intrepid Westerners who found their calling among Borneo's indigenous nomadic tribes. One was a Swiss environmentalist who assimilated into their culture and fought for their rights. The other, an American in the mold of Indiana Jones, made his fortune selling their art. Carl joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about the exciting stories he uncovered in the wilds of Borneo and to share his tips for jungle visitors. Carl, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Wow, what a cool gig to have to go to Borneo and track the stories of these two fascinating characters and then write a book about it. It's an amazing way to mix some dynamic and eccentric people along with a fascinating corner of the world. Tell us about Borneo, just in general, where is it? Uh, how big is it? Why is it so remote? Well, Borneo is the third largest island in the world. It's about 600 miles uh, one direction and 800 miles uh, in the other. And it's up in the, the Malay archipelago. Uh, it's actually parts of our three countries. About three quarters is Indonesian Kalimantan. And then another chunk is uh, Malaysia, Sarawak, and uh, Sabah. And then there's the little kingdom of Brunei tucked away in there. And because of its size, the coasts of Borneo have been uh, subject to every great migration and religion over thousands of years. But the interiors of Borneo, which are cut off by jungle and then rapids and mountains, have remained fairly pristine for a long, long time. Now, you spent a couple months in Borneo uh, as you were working on this book. Were you able to get into the interior? I would imagine that's where the the mystery of Borneo uh, hides out. I did. I made two very distinct trips. One was with Michael um, in search of the art of the Dayaks, who were the indigenous people of Borneo. And the other was uh, sort of tracking the footsteps of my other main character, Bruno Mansur, and that was in the mountains in the wildest sections of Sarawak. The thing about Borneo is that, you know, a lot of the wildness, sadly, is gone nowadays. It's not the world's last untouched Eden any longer? Well, I wish it was so, but mm. unfortunately it's not. You know, between uh, palm oil and, and mining and logging, um, there's been a huge amounts of development. Mm. Uh, the area that I walked in the footsteps of Bruno really was the very last section of untouched primary forest in Sarawak. Wow. And it's mostly untouched because it's uh, very high, steep mountains and with the, really the last nomadic pinons left in Borneo. You highlight the story of two fascinating people, Bruno Manser and Michael Palmieri. Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of these guys and, and why were they in Borneo? Well, both were children of the 60s and both uh, sort of turned their backs on Western culture and sought adventure and had these incredible lives of adventure even before they went to Asia and then ended up in Southeast Asia and in Borneo 
in two, well, similar places and relatively the same time. And Bruno went into, he was fascinated with the, the Pinon, who were the nomads of Borneo, and hiked through the forest in this sort of epic journey without any idea of where he was going or where he would find them with very few supplies. He almost starved, uh, and he finally found the Pinon, and he just sort of ingratiated himself with them. And, you know, at first they just sort of ignored him or called him, uh, you know, man from far away. And eventually he stayed so long. I mean, he's sort of an archetype of somebody that I've been long fascinated with, which is somebody who goes in and then goes in so deeply they don't really even want to come out. And Bruno was soon walking through the jungle barefoot. He could hunt with a blowpipe. He spoke Pinon fluently. And then Pinon called him Pinon Man. And relatively the same time, Michael went in seeking adventure, extreme adventure, and he started collecting the art of the Dayaks and originally primarily just as a way to support his adventures. But as time passed, development started coming into Borneo. And uh, as Michael was collecting the art and traveling, the cultures began to dissipate and he started collecting that art and it became incredibly valuable. And at the same time, Bruno was in his Eden, just sort of living what all he wanted to do was live quietly in the belly of the mother, as he put it. But as he was living in his Eden, uh, Malaysian logging accelerated. You know, he was horrified by that. And the Pinan didn't live in villages. They didn't live in cities. They lived exclusively in the forest in small encampments um, with very, you know, they had no no money, no consumer items. They shared everything. And he started to kind of organize the Pinan against Malaysian logging, these blockades, and that unleashed a whole wild cascade of events. This is just mm-hmm. such a fascinating idea to bring in these two men, so different but but so similar. You got Bruno Manser, who's kind of like the idealistic do-gooder that is enamored with these pristine tribes and sees the threat by modern development. And you got uh, Michael Palmieri, who's sort of a buccaneer art dealer. He wrote about how both spent their life, quote, in pursuit of the sacred fire of exotic indigenous people. What is that sacred fire of exotic indigenous people that appealed to these two Westerners? Well, I think they were both looking for a treasure, and it's a treasure a lot of us are uh, yearn for, hunger for, really, in the West. I mean, if you look at the popularity of yoga or you go on Instagram and look at uh, the thousands of people who are doing yoga, asana, and in temples in Bali, there's this great hunger for a spiritualism that I think is lost and, Hmm. and it's absent in the West. And I think really not just now, but over hundreds and hundreds of years, there's been this kind of Western romantic notions of the power of indigenous people. And that has been expressed in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's sought after. There's the urge to civilize. There's the urge to conquer. And now it's kind of the urge to have this way of living, uh, living with nature, living in contact with other people closely with family. And Michael and Bruno both pursued that in very, very different ways. For Bruno, it was just to live among the Pinon and to know them and to experience this profound connection with nature. And for Michael, it was to have those adventures, but also to collect the art, which was 
It was mm. sacred art, you know, paddles and mm -hmm. shields that could make a man drop and sacred statues that protected villages. And there's another Western dealer named Tom Murray who said to me uh, at a big tribal art show in Paris that today this art saves our souls. Carl Hoffman's latest book investigates true stories of death and treasure and the impacts outsiders are having on indigenous tribes in faraway Borneo. It's called The Last Wild Men of Borneo. There's more on his website at carlhoffman.com, and that's Carl with a C. You can also listen to Carl's earlier Travel with Rick Steves conversation about his experiences riding some of the world's most dangerous trains, planes, ferries, and mass transit. Look for his interview about the Lunatic Express in the Travel with Rick Steves show archives from October in 2011. You'll find a link at ricksteves.com slash radio. Carl, when we're talking about these Westerners that venture into Borneo, yeah, treasure hunters, but the treasure may be artifacts, it, it may be artwork, but it's also sort of a fleeting or hard-to-capture way of life, and, and maybe they're just fascinated with are envious about jungle family values. Is that what, what, what well, motivated Bruno? Well, I think Bruno? it's a treasure. The treasure is an idea. You mm -hmm. know, the treasure is an idea of wild, unconquered people who live lives in complete sort of synchronicity with their environment and who know where they're from and where they're going. I mean, you That's know, what I see. That's, I'm looking at a photograph of Bruno right now and his toes are, are grasping this boulder that's in the middle of a river and he's just wearing his loincloth with his spear and it, he looks like he's found where he wants to be. He's connected. He's barefoot in the jungle of Borneo. One of the things I think that you know, that's important to me in the book is how that idea is, it's something that captivates me and it's something that has pulled me along, you know, into very, very wild places for a long time. But it's also, you know, it's more complex than that. And I think we tend to exoticize the world and romanticize people who are much more complex than often our Western sort of imaginations about them are. And I, you know, the book, gets into that. I mean, you know, this idea that what Bruno did, he became this saint, almost a worshipped figure in the West, and he was hated by the Malaysian government and almost worshipped by the Pinan too. And all these long Western tropes kind of came into play and caught almost both Michael and Bruno in this web in which they themselves no longer had control. And that, you know, resulted in a tragedy for Bruno, really. Well, just that simple storyline of Bruno being in enchanted by this uh, jungle sort of environment and going in there and then gaining such an affinity for the people that he becomes their champion against uh, this sort of inhuman development that completely ignores this fragile and rich heritage, and then that he becomes beloved among the tribesmen whose community he embraced and even learned their language. This is a unique story. But it's also more complicated than that because Bruno was, to the Pinon, you know, he wasn't a figure, an ahistorical figure. He was a figure that was seen in context. I mean, the British were Charles Brooke, the white Raja of Borneo, had ruled that section of Borneo for three generations and ruled with a fairly benign hand. And uh, the incredible irony that the Pinans saw in Bruno almost the return of the white Raja. And, and that's why the Malaysians hated him so much, because he was a representative of really their colonial past. 
and Bruno eventually disappeared, what, in the year 2000, and nobody knows why. The people who knew him best and who worked most closely with him for longest strongly believed he committed suicide and that he was driven kind of mad. You know, he, he mm-hmm. worked himself into a bit of a cul-de-sac from mm-hmm. which there was no escape. Mm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Carl Hoffman. His book is The Last Wild Men of Borneo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Dusty's calling in from Lakemont, Georgia. Dusty, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. We made two trips to national parks in Borneo uh, about two years ago. Hmm. Um, They were very interesting, very remote. We've never been on anything like that before. And did you actually feel like you got a chance to get an appreciation of the indigenous cultures there? We did, uh, especially on one of them. It went to uh, Baco National Park. Mm-hmm. It was quite an adventurous trip to get out there on these dugout sort of mm. boats that were um, powered by small outboards and driven by kamikaze drivers. <laughs> did you um, have to go through the rapids? Yeah, through some rapids and then out into some ocean bays and then finally came into the uh, National Park and went in search of uh, uh, lemurs and proboscis monkeys and uh, silverleaf monkeys and ran into pit vipers all the time. So it was an adventure. Okay, now this is so interesting to me, Dusty, because you've got Bruno Manser, who just abandons his European existence and he learns the language and he becomes basically a Pinan tribes person. You got Carl Hoffman, who can spend months in the jungle writing these books, but then you've got tourists like you and me. Did you feel safe going there? Was it realistic that you could actually, you know, go through these rapids and go to the the middle of Borneo? And is it something that somebody who's not a thrill seeker could actually uh, reasonably do and have a good time? I would have to say a guarded yes. I was fine with it, but I have to admit my wife was a little scared couple of times along the way, we were going pretty fast in these small boats, and water was splashing all over the place. And uh, she did get a little scared, but once we were on land, it was fine. Their definition of being careful is totally different. We were within about three feet of a fairly large pit viper that was on a leaf. Our guide didn't seem to be impressed, but pointed it out. And uh, we just kind of kept on going. Uh-huh. And, you'd and re- would you recommend so- it? You know, if you're a hardy adventurer and don't mind something really out of the ordinary, it's great. I wouldn't go if you're sensitive to temperature and humidity because almost every day the temperatures were in the mid-90s and the humidity was in the mid-90s at the same time. So, Hey, Dusty, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And uh, Rick's calling in from Tucson, Arizona. Rick, have you had an experience in, in Borneo? wife and I had a chance to go over to the Indonesian part of uh, Borneo, what they call Kalimantan, and our experience was not at all like what Dusty described or what uh, your guest has been describing. Instead, ours was basically a, a ride up a river into the national park and experiencing some of the wildlife and passing an occasional village along the way. Uh, but with very few people around. It was quite extraordinary. Hmm. So, Rick, this sounds so interesting. Exactly where were you in Borneo, and how long did you stay there? Well, I was in the part of Indonesian Borneo, which is called Kalimantan. We were there for just three days, took an easy flight over from Jakarta and back, and had a chance to experience the 
an entirely different island from Java and Borneo. And it sounds like it's a reasonable thing for a first world tourist to do. If you're gonna, if you're bold enough to go to Java, you could splice in a few days in Borneo and talk about an, an extra dimension. Exactly, and and you see wildlife that you you are not going to find in Java or Bali. So it makes for a, a completely different experience. Thank you very much for reporting in from Borneo, Rick from Arizona. Thanks very much. Carl, when you think of people just reading your book and being inspired to travel to Borneo, what general thoughts would you you share? I think that would be awesome, and I think everybody should. Well, maybe not everybody. That might overwhelm the place. But I'm a complete supporter of people going to what seems to be wild and remote places. And, you know, the reality is Borneo is big, and There are places in Borneo that are very hard to get to and that take a long time and a lot of money and effort, but there are a lot of places that are much more easily accessed and there are lots of tour companies and I think everybody who has any desire to see a beautiful rainforest and and orangutans and proboscis monkeys indeed, hornbills, which are magnificent birds, their sound alone is incredible Mm. as they fly through the trees and... The reality is that places like Borneo are changing. They're changing fast. They're under a lot of pressure, and I would jump at the opportunity to see them, and I would say it's fairly low risk. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Carl Hoffman. He's written The Last Wild Men of Borneo, and you heard it here. It's it's relatively low risk to go to Borneo. I don't think that would be the the (laughs) subtitle of their tourist brochure. Borneo, it's relatively low risk. I would say it is low risk. I I shouldn't have said said relatively. Carl, if you were my guide and you wanted me to have one experience that would leave me just enchanted by Borneo, what specific experience would that be? Wow. Well, that's a really good question. I think I would go into, you know, someplace like Samarinda or... uh, East Kalimantan and go up the Mahakam River and for a ways and go up on a boat. And, you know, it's a big, mighty river that takes you into the heart of Borneo. Mm. And I'll never just say one place. The other is to go see uh, orangutans in uh, various parks. Mm. And it's important to see them and to support those parks. And what's a moment where you are sitting, enjoying the moment and perhaps eating something where you thought, I'm so glad I'm here. Well, I mean, so many moments. I hiked for three and a half weeks with a pinon across this last strip of pristine jungle, and we ate, um, this may not turn everybody on, but we ate squirrels and songbirds and deers and every one of those meals, uh, you know, all shot with a blowpipe and a poison dart with uh, pinons and I felt incredibly privileged um, to be with them and to be sharing meals with them, and or I should say for them to be sharing their meals with me, taking me through that world. Images of exploring Borneo. Carl Hoffman, what a fascinating adventure you've had, and thanks for sharing it in your book, The Last Wild Men of Borneo. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had help this week from NPR in Washington. You'll find links to our guests in the notes for each week's show. You can also listen again in the show archives and comment on what you hear at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe. 
one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.